right. Well, I'm going to invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take your seats. We'll continue with our time together uh, this morning. Uh, my name's Brad. It's a pleasure to have you along for our journey together this fall as we move through the very exciting, contrary to Pastor Mike's uh, announcements, the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament. So we started our journey together last weekend, and I want to say a special thanks to everybody, all of our volunteers who helped make that outdoor venue uh, outside in the park and the barbecue such a wonderful success. I want to also say a special thanks to Curtis Cottrell, who is playing the piano here, uh, leads our team to Guatemala as one of our elders. Curtis literally, you know, sometimes we say that uh, volunteers give blood, sweat, and tears. Curtis literally gave blood in the sense that while he was opening the burger bag, he cut himself didn't get on the burgers, there were no blood in the burgers, but he had to go to the hospital and get stitches and all that kind of stuff, so high cost of, but we're also excited, Curtis, we love you, and we're excited that it will heal in time for you to come next weekend on the men's work weekend up at Camp Bob, so yeah. <laughs> that was just our little adventure from last weekend. So uh, as we move into our teaching time together today and look at the book of Revelation, I just want to recap quickly for us what we talked about last weekend when it comes to how to read or how not to read the book of Revelation. So remember, there's two problems, two pitfalls that we need to avoid if we're going to approach Revelation in a healthy way. And so the first one that we need to avoid is uh, the challenge that a lot of us get into, and that is just we open the book of Revelation, we read it, it gets real weird real quick, and we just say, I have no idea what's going on, I am not going to go any further in this, and we just avoid it, or we fear it, or we think, I don't even know if anyone can understand this stuff, it's just complicated. And if we fear or avoid it, or it's too scary, or maybe in your history it's been misused and abused and weaponized to say certain things that you thought didn't feel comfortable with, uh, maybe you still have some scar tissue from those wounds. But the book of Revelation actually opens, and it's one of the only ancient books that I know that opens with a very clear promise in Revelation 1-3, which says God blesses those who read the words of this prophecy, who reads the words of this book and to the church and blesses all those who listen to its message and who obey what it says. And so if we avoid it flat out, we're just going to miss the blessing that God has for us if we dig into it. So that's the first problem or challenge, fearing or avoiding the book of Revelation. The second problem or challenge comes if we approach the book of Revelation and think to ourselves, oh, it's prophecy. I'll just look in here for a timeline of future events and try and identify this or that. And though the book is prophetic in nature, in the sense that it declares God's truth for us and invites obedience both in the lives of the initial recipients as well as ours down through the ages. It's also a letter. It's a letter written by John, who's a pastor, to seven churches, real churches, with real people, with real challenges at the turn of the first century in real geography in the land of what we know as Turkey today in Asia Minor. And as we saw last week when we looked in chapter 1 in the book of Revelation and chapter 4, John has this vision, and it's a vision of Jesus. It's a vision of what's going on in the heavenly or spiritual realms. 
and continues to this day. And John has specific things that he's told to write down to say to the churches and also to you and I today. And so at the end of chapter 1 in Revelation, we read that in verse 19, it says, write down what you've seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. And this is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars, John, that you've seen in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so the great thing that we see already is that even at the beginning of the book, Jesus is interested in clarifying for us exactly the meaning of the images and symbols in the book of Revelation. He's not going to let us go on and trip our way through this and try and figure it out on our own. So John sees this image, this vision in his mind of seven lampstands representing seven churches. And in ancient writing, whether it's in the Old Testament or uh, even uh, secularly widely distributed writings in the ancient world, seven is a symbolic number. It's a number of completeness, a number of wholeness that represents uh, that everything is integrated together. And so when we see and we hear seven stands, lampstands, and seven churches, and what Jesus is saying to us through John is, hey, listen, this is a message for the complete church, that there's not an issue that the church will face that isn't actually addressed in some of these words and messages to the church. Gerald Johnson reminds us in his helpful book, Discipleship on the Edge, that the seven churches in Revelation, they actually embody every major issue that the church in that day and through history and in our day, has ever struggled with or will ever struggle with in every age and in every cultural setting. And so it's a message to the whole church or to the complete church. So we're going to look at two of the messages to two of those churches today. The word, because they're quite similar, the word and the message to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, and then the word or message to the church of Sardis in chapter 3. So you can open there in your Bibles or on your Bible app. Remember, John's writing to them from prison, and if you left his little prison island of Patmos and you sailed to the mainland, the first city or area that you'd come to is the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus in the ancient world was a big deal. It was the fourth largest city in antiquity, and it had a population of about 225,000, which was no small potatoes in the first century. It was a major financial center because of its geographical location. Uh, They were one of the first uh, centers to really pioneer massive schemes of banking and industry. And so they were very sophisticated and very cosmopolitan, very urban. If you wanted to know like what the latest stuff was, Ephesus was where it was at. And you think the LEC is big and the Arena Bowl seats a lot of people, or we got arenas downtown. In Ephesus, they had an amphitheater that would seat 24,000 people, and they filled it regularly. So this was a big deal in the ancient world. And you might remember, if you're familiar at all with Paul's travels in the book of Acts, Paul being one of the first uh, apostles, that this is a church that Paul himself actually founded in the city of Ephesus. In fact, he pastored there longer than any other place that he stopped in his ministry. He pastored there for almost three years, just over two and a half years. 
And then after that, we know that this was a church that was led by uh, two other significant leaders in the life of the early Christian movement. That is Priscilla and her husband Aquila, who were incredibly significant teachers. And then this church on top of that was pastored not only by Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, but by Timothy, Paul's personal uh, protege whom he mentored. And then it was also pastored by John. And so this is kind of like a who's who of uh, the people in the New Testament. So if any church was going to get like good teaching, high marks on a church assessment, you know, have a great leadership culture and church environment, like it would be the church at Ephesus because they had like all of this high-level input going on. They would be like the church at Ephesus would be the model church. They'd be hosting church conferences on like how you do it for other churches. Their pastors would be big-time authors and writers and bloggers, and all the other churches and pastors would like flock to them and ask, WWED, what would Ephesus do? And we should just do that. And so Jesus, speaking through uh, John to the church, certainly has some words of commendation and praise for the church at Ephesus. So let's read together in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. So the message continues, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the messenger, the one who's responsible to communicate to the church at Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is saying he's right present in the midst of his churches. He's not distant somewhere observing them. He's right in the middle of them. He says to the church in Ephesus, I know all of the things that you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know that you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not, and you have discovered that they are liars, and you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. So Jesus says to them, hey, guys, there is a lot of stuff going really well in your community. Like, you guys are really hardworking, you've just been busy in service, and you're, you're patient and enduring in times of great suffering and tribulation, and you're theologically faithful as well. We see later in verse 6 that he says, uh, you hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know a lot about uh, these people, but notice John's wording. He says, we, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He doesn't say he hates the Nicolaitans. But Ephesus has got a lot of things right. They're very busy and focused on, they don't tolerate unorthodoxy or heresy. They examine the things that are coming across and what's being taught. They don't just take it all in at face value. So there's lots of things to affirm and to love at this church. But we're going to see in each one of the messages to the churches that there's areas of commendation and that, that Christ says these are really strong. Keep these things strong. But there's also some areas of concern. All is not right in the church of Ephesus, even though things are humming along really nicely on the surface, but there are areas where 
Christ wants to put his finger on and say there's things that need to be attended to. So let's keep reading and see what those are in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. I have this complaint against you, even though all these good things. You don't love me, God says, and you don't love each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me. Do the works that you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place amongst the churches. A word of warning. So Christ not only has commendation for them, but he also has this area of significant concern that he wants them to pay attention to. He says, you don't love me and you don't love each other like you did at first. Some translations say they have lost their first love. They have fallen out of love with Jesus and with each other. We think, how does something like that happen? I mean, it's a church. How, do they, how does a church fall out of love with the head of the church, Jesus? Well, I can tell you how it happened because I think it happened to us here at Jericho Ridge a few years ago. See, if you rewind the clock and you think, when we first planted, in our case, that was uh, 13 years ago. When you're starting something, like the fire and the passion for Jesus is like really high. And your passion and love for people that God loves is white hot. And you're so focused on making an impact in the lives of hurting and lost people in your city, you're willing to do anything that it takes to reach them. And there's sacrifice involved, and there's time that's sacrificed, and significant financial commitments, and stepping out in faith in areas, and you're serving in areas that might not be your core gift set, but there's just a need, and so you jump in. It's an all-hands-on-deck kind of adventure, and everybody is on their knees continually crying out to God for his mercy and his presence and his power. And, just, and in church planting, like there, that can be a real sweet time in a church's life or a life of a ministry in the early years. Now, at the same time, I don't want to romanticize all of that period because those of you who lived on that journey with us know it was a ton of hard work. Like we met across the parking lot in the... Um, in the cafeteria at Ari Mountain. And do you know how much work it is to make a 35-year-old high school cafeteria look, smell, and work like clean and good for a worship gathering? It's a lot of work. But uh, we grew, and then we moved into the half gym, and then in 2010, we moved here to the event center. But over time, as any organization grows, and as happened to Jericho, you have more people, you have more logistics, more staff, more budgets to manage. And around maybe two or three years ago, elders meetings started to shift. And normally we have elders meetings twice a month, and we have one that's strictly focused on prayer, where we pray for you, we pray for the church, we pray for our city, we pray for God to move in our own hearts and lives and keep us on our knees. And then we have one meeting where we talk more about organizational, logistical, and spiritual leadership. And so it was suggested, well, you know what? We have so much to do in this season in the life of Jericho. Why don't we just take just a little bit of our prayer time for organizational discussion? And that little bit turned into a little bit more and more, and then turned into the whole thing. 
And then we stopped having elders prayer times altogether because we told ourselves, we have so much to get done. Like if we don't put the agenda, you know, and jam it full of stuff and talk about it and make it happen, you know, we're just, we're going to go backwards. We need to really put our pedal to the metal and get her done. And it was subtle, but we had succumbed to perhaps one of the most deceptive tricks that the enemy can lay for a church or for an individual. And that is where activity replaces intimacy. This is the area of concern that Jesus is putting his finger on in the church at Ephesus. And by his mercy, he did it for us too at Jericho. Activity can replace intimacy so easily. And so our current elders team got down on our knees and we repented that we had become, as a church and as a leadership and as individual leaders, too busy to pray. I was listening to a leadership webinar, webinar by an author named Pete Scazzaro, and I deeply respect his work this last week. And he said stri something striking about this problem. A bunch of pastors were asking, how can we grow our church? How can we do this? How can we do that? And he said, one of the greatest dangers to the global church today is busyness. We are called to a deep life of intimacy with Jesus, but we are often unwilling to slow down and take the time that is necessary to listen to him. And the result is that many Christians and many churches today are out there doing great work for Jesus without Jesus. Ouch. <laughs> Have you ever found yourself so busy doing work for Jesus that you don't have time to be with Jesus. You know, friends, it's possible. It's possible to preach sermons without needing Jesus. It's possible to pray eloquent and impassioned prayers without Jesus that will lack power. It's possible to teach the Bible to kids or to youth or lead a life group without Jesus, but it's not going to change anybody's life. It's possible to go to Bible college or seminary, get straight 4.0 GPAs, attend every class, but do it without Jesus and miss the whole point and have wasted a lot of your money. It's possible to be a Christian counselor without Jesus. It's possible to be a missionary without Jesus. It's possible to be a pastor, run a Christian charity, or have lots of things going on in your life, yet your life to be completely devoid of the presence and power of Jesus. Let me be perfectly clear. I do not recommend that you try any of those things without Jesus because the consequences are disastrous. But it is possible. And I want to suggest there are lots of people out there trying. The results, even if they are impressive, will be short-lived in sight of eternity. Remember Jesus, when people come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things in your name? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, um, you actually never got to know me, and that's a problem. So here's an assessment question to ask that tests this area of dependency on God. If Jesus took away his spirit, would it make any difference? If Jesus, for whatever reason, decided, I'm going to remove my presence from Jericho Ridge. I'm going to remove my presence from your life or from your ministry or the things that you're about. 
would it make any difference at all or would you continue to just go on doing the same things that you do and actually getting the same results that you get? That's an indicator. The tragic reality is that for some congregations and some Christians, the removal of the presence and power of God would make no meaningful difference whatsoever. Their programs would just continue on. People wouldn't really notice anything had changed because they're operating unaware of and independent from Jesus. If you've gotten to the place in your own personal life where it doesn't actually take any faith to live the life that you live or to do the things that you do, everything you do would be possible on human strength and initiative, then this is an indicator that activity has replaced intimacy. And so Jesus sends a warning to his church in Ephesus and us and says, listen, so many good things. Love your theological willingness to fight for truth. Love the patient endurance in suffering through pressure. And I love that you're hardworking, but your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. Your hard work for me is pulling you away from me. Activity has replaced intimacy. And friends, if this doesn't describe the North American church, I don't know what does. I think we're at a dangerous time in history where we're drowning. We are awash in programs and conferences and resources and books, education, training. And many of these things are excellent. They're not wrong in and of themselves. But we might be missing the point. Jesus simply says to his church in Ephesus, hey, do you love me and do you love each other like you used to? Or have you walked a different path? And so friends, let me say this to you. Here at Jericho, we could fill the arena bowl, grow in numbers and all of that kind of stuff, but if we did not become a more loving community of people who are more deeply passionate about God and more deeply passionate about seeing lost people in our city come to faith in Him, who cares? It's worth nothing. And I, for one, don't want to be a part of it. So Jesus says to His church in Ephesus and His church at Jericho, he gives two commands that will help bring a corrective to this situation. And his first command is simply remember. He says it, remember where we used to be, remember. He invites them to remember, and it's not a finger-wagging kind of remember. It's an invitational reminder to remember. Remember the level of connection and friendship we used to have and return to that. I love the language that Jesus uses when he's speaking about the same problem to the church in Sardis. So turn over with me to Revelation chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 to 3. He says this, hey, church in Sardis, I know all the things that you do. Again, you're busy. You've got a lot going on. You have a reputation on the surface for being vibrant and alive, but I know what's beneath the surface. You're dead. Wake up. Strengthen that little that remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find your actions do not meet the requirements of God. Go back to what you heard. Remember. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold on to it firmly. Repent. 
Turn to me again, because if you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly and as unexpectedly as a thief in the night. There's a little feature on most modern vehicles that kind of epitomizes this um, problem that's happening in these two churches. And you see, if you're driving around town, or if you are a new driver, you need to be actively aware of all of the circumstances that are coming at you all of the time. And so you're constantly kind of being vigilant and attentive to the things that are happening. And so you don't use this feature. But sometimes when you go on a long drive on a road that gets really straight and easy, you settle in and you flick this feature on and then you take your foot off the gas. And you are then on what? Cruise control. That's right. And so what John is saying to Ephesus and Sardis is, hey, listen, some of you as a church, you've been following Jesus for a long time, and you have placed your spiritual life and your church on cruise control. It's on autopilot. Prayers are just simply repetitions with no meaning. Bible reading is done simply because you feel a sense of guilt if you don't do it. Church attendance, just like, well, I guess it's in my calendar, I should go. Service, all lifeless with no heart. And Jesus says to the church, hey, if you're in that place, wake up. Take it off cruise control. Because remember how much you used to pay attention beforehand. Remember how much love you had for your neighbors. Remember your family members, those on the margins of culture, people who wrestle with addictions, who don't fit in your circles, who are outside of your socioeconomics, people who wrestle with mental health. You used to have deep love for them, but now it's just kind of become routine. Now you don't even notice some of them anymore. Take a minute, Jesus says, to remember. Go back to what you heard and believed at first, hold on to it firmly is the language of chapter 3. Or wake up. And so that requires the conducting of an assessment of our spiritual conditions. And so if you could stick the thermometer into your soul today, what word or phrase would you use to describe your relationship with God? What would come up on the reading? What word or phrase would you use to describe just the current status that you're, of this season that you're in with God? You see, our current emphasis this year at Jericho is about prayer and developing a deeper sense of dependence on God as our first response. And so take time in prayer to just say, hey God, how do you think it's going with us? Could you speak to me about the status of our relationship? Ask him how he thinks and feels. Set aside some time. Maybe you, uh, for you that looks like journaling a bit. Maybe it's silence and solitude. Maybe you have a spiritual friendship, a person who you can check in with and say, you know me well. Could you reflect back to me some of the things you're seeing in my life and in my heart? Give, you, give me a sense of what you see as areas for growth or areas of strength. Your small group leader would be a great person to do that with. Uh, Pastor Wally or I would be very happy to help have a coffee with you, listen help you take some next steps on your growth journey if you feel stalled or stuck in some way. But I want us to talk just a minute here about this phrase, first 
love. Because I think that sometimes when we think about remembering and assessing our spiritual condition, we think to ourselves, oh yeah, I actually remember the euphoria of an excitement that I felt at a distant past in my spiritual journey. But like, Brad, let's be realistic I'm never going to get back there. Like, that was like the highest of high in terms of mountaintop experiences with Jesus. Like, I'm not going to experience that again. So, when I hear Jesus say, hey, go, go back to your first love, my first impulse is, well, that's not a realistic possibility. And I think that we should acknowledge and try and understand, what is Jesus saying then? Because why would Jesus say, return to your first love if it can't happen for you? I think we need to acknowledge that for some people, that first love experience is incredibly different from your experiences today. And so it's very easy for us to have cynicism set in when we think, well, I couldn't even replicate that level of connection or enthusiasm I felt way back at fill-in-the-blank summer camp or when I was a brand-new Christian or Bible college or whatever. And this is, I think, where the message to the church at Sardis is helpful for us because look at what Jesus calls us back to. He says in chapter 3, a calling you back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold on to that firmly. So it's the actions in, in chapter 2, same thing. When he's pointing out what it means for the church in Ephesus to return to first love, he says, turn back to me and do the works that you did at first. And so the invitation here is to examine the actions, not the emotion around a first love experience. Don't look at the first love phrase and think, well, I'm not going to get back to that emotional, euphoric type experience. Examine the actions, not the emotions. What did you do, not how did you feel in those moments? So this reminds me of when Meg and I were first dating. This is our such a cute couple. This is our engagement photo from the 90s. You know, when we were dating, like, my actions looked like that of a man in first love experience. Like, I would do anything possible to arrange my schedule to spend time with her. I would stay up late in the night having conversation to get to know her more. And we were joking about this because we were walking around for, uh, Fort Langley on Friday night and there used to be a little coffee shop there called Spill the Beans and they closed at 9. And so like 9 o'clock, we were just getting started in terms of conversation. So we'd have to leave Fort Langley and drive all the way in to Langley City and go to Tim Hortons and then spend time, you know, getting to know each other more at Tim Hortons. But like no hour of the night was too late to stay up getting to know the beloved more. And we would regularly shut that place down. And I would reallocate whatever meager resources I had as a struggling student to try and demonstrate what my love. My actions looked like, not always, I don't want you guys to think that, you know, this is, you could ask Meg for the real story about some of that time period. But like, my actions looked like the, that of a man in love. My finances looked like that of a poor student in love. <laughs> I acted in a way that was commensurate with my desires and my hopes for the relationship. 
But here's actually something interesting. And that is that I love her way more 20 years now on than I did when that picture was taken. There's a deepening and a maturing to that love that happens. It's still helpful to ask the question, do my actions still demonstrate that I love her, that I value her? And that's what Jesus is saying to these churches. Hey, you used to act like you valued me. You used to act like you loved me. The first thing that you would check in the morning when you got up was, God, good morning. What do you have for me today? Not Facebook. What did all my friends telling me happened and I need to pay attention to today? You used to set aside time to be with me in prayer. Good news, gang, you can do it again since Canucks games won't be worth watching this season. The driving question here, <laughs> Peter's like, I'm, you're not going to get an amen out of me for that one. <laughs> the driving question here is not about our feelings or returning to some euphoric state of first love. It's a, a question of priorities. So let me ask you this question today. What place does Jesus occupy in your life? What place does Jesus occupy? So friend, maybe you're listening today and you have actually never decided to include Jesus in your life as your forgiver and as your leader. Not just into that part of your life called church or religion, but to be the one that occupies the whole of your life that's in charge as the king and leader. And in a few minutes, we're going to move into a time of communion, and we remember what Christ did for us. And we're going to have people that can pray with you. And these are trusted and trained people, and today that's Constance and Katie and Pastor Wally and myself, and we'd be happy to pray with you and start you on that journey because inviting Jesus to be part of your life, to have charge of your life is the most scary but the most wonderful decision that you can and will ever make. And so don't leave here today without talking to us about it. Recovering that first love, that place of priority. The first thing Jesus invites us to do is to remember it. Not the emotions, but the actions. The second thing that Jesus says to his church and to us is repent. Now, this is a changing of an intellectual ascent of changing of our minds, which is true. That's a necessary and helpful first step in the process of repentance. But there's more to it than that. Repentance is more than just changing my mind about something. Again, it has to touch my actions and direction. It has to show up somewhere, not just in my head where I make assent to a different set of propositional truths that I heard Sunday somebody talk about in the banquet hall. So when I repent, repentance means things like changing my habits, changing my schedule, changing my priorities. Whatever it takes is necessary to restore lost intimacy. That's what repentance looks like. That's how you restore or recover or maintain closeness in a relationship. You go back and you do what you did when you were dating. You prioritize those things. 
And so repentance is returning to that place of connection to make sure that in the busyness of September, in the busyness of life, we don't become too busy to pray. We don't become too busy to listen and respond to God. And the great thing is that Jesus makes a wonderful and powerful promise to those who remember and repent because he concludes his message to the church in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 with these words. He says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of the presence of God. Now, the tree of life is present at the very, very beginning of the story in Genesis, you remember. And it appears again in the end, in the book of Revelation. And I love the picture that Daryl Johnson paints and explains what that means for us in the here and now. He says, if God promises that he's going to give you the fruit from the tree of life, that represents all of the goodness of life that the Lord of life longs to share with those who love him. In first creation, because of sin, the way to that experience was blocked. And in the new creation, the blocks have been removed because of the blood of the Lamb. By the death of Jesus, the way has been opened. And it turns out that the tree of life is actually Jesus himself. And so his promise is relationship. First love. His promise to first love lovers is just, I'm going to give you more of myself. I'm going to make a way that's unfettered for you for more of me in your relationship. And so do you desire more of Jesus in your relationship, in your life today? More of his presence, more of his power, more of his strength and comforting and guiding. Megan and the team are going to come and lead us in two songs of response. And some of our elders are going to make their way to the communion tables to serve. And the invitation is open because we have for us pictured here at the communion table an invitation. It really mirrors those two commands that Jesus has initiated for his church. Remember and repent. Remember and repent. See, the bread of the communion table reminds us about Jesus' body broken for us. And the scripture says, often as you do this, you are remembering, you are reminding yourself of Jesus' body. And so every time we participate in communion, it's an act of gratitude, of saying, Jesus, I am so grateful for what you have done for me, that you loved me enough that you loved us enough to lay down your life for us. And so when you come to the table today, come with a heart filled with gratitude and thanksgiving and say, God, I thank you for that you have made a way. And then we have the fruit of the vine, grape juice on the tables as a reminder of the great cost that was paid for you and I to be set free from evil. The blood of a fully innocent sacrificial lamb was shed so that you and I could know peace with God, so that the way could be open for relationship with God. And so here at Jericho, this is an open table, meaning that if you know Jesus as your forgiver and your leader, there's a place for you. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have everything in your life put together neatly and tidily. You just come to the table today as an expression of saying, God, I repent of the things that are keeping me from you, and I want to say I need more of you in my life.
So let's pray together, and then whenever you feel personally ready, you can stand, you can make your way to one of the tables at the sides here, and you can take the elements and bring them back to your seat, and there you can take whatever posture you like. You can kneel, you can sit, you can stand as you worship and express what's in your heart to God. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy for us. We thank you for the depth of love and relationship that you invite us into as those who know you as your church. And so, Father, where there are areas collectively for us here at Jericho where we have walked away from or quieted or silenced your voice, Father, collectively, we repent of those things. And we say, Father, would you lead us back to an attentiveness and an obedience to you? We will do what you say. We will follow your lead. And God, individually, I pray that you'd speak to my heart, speak to each heart here today. And if there are areas where we have become too busy, where we have walked away from you, and you're saying, I'm calling you back to actions, things that look like you yet again prioritize and desire a relationship with me. Father, we want to be obedient, and we don't want to miss that gentle and kind and gracious invitation that you offer to us. We want to say yes to it, Lord. So gift us by your grace. Empower us by your spirit. Lord, we acknowledge we don't even get to that place on our own strength. We come only because of you. We hear you, your voice speaking to us only because you have given us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us as churches and us as individuals. So speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We are attentive to you in this space and in this place today. Speak words of blessing and life. Speak words of comfort and healing. Speak the words, Father, that only you can speak. And stir our hearts and our spirits to respond in faithfulness and with joy. We come to you. Open us again to your move of your spirit. In Jesus' wonderful and powerful name that has name above every name, we declare it together and say, amen. Let's worship. Thank you.